right. Uh, well, hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast. Uh, I'm Greg Rogers with Securing America's Future Energy, uh, or Safe Greg. Um, and I am at the uh, SAE Innovations and Mobility Conference um, in Novi, Michigan. Uh, fantastic group of people here um, discussing um, a lot of the most interesting things that are happening in transportation policy across all modes. Um, and we're thrilled to be here, um, and thanks to SAE for, um, for hosting us. And, and uh, today I have uh, Annie Chang. Uh, she's the head of uh, New Mobility at SAE International, um, here to uh, chat about micromobility and all the fun stuff happening in that space. Um, so Annie, thank you for uh, joining me. Thank you for having me, Greg. Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess um, let's jump right in. Um, what role does SAE play now um, in sort of um, the mobility policy, mobility policy and the mobility industry in general? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, traditionally we were in the auto and aerospace industries, right? The SAE, A could stand for auto and mm -hmm. aero. Um, but uh, more recently, I would say, Three years, starting 2017, something like this, um, we started working in shared mobility. Mm -hmm. And um, last year, we started working in micro mobility. So we are not necessarily chasing the trend, but we are helping the industry grow and evolve um, through uh, facilitating the conversations um, to set standards, um, to um, get to the best practices that will help um, the different parties involved. Um, essentially deploy the technologies in a safer manner, in a more effective manner. Mm -hmm. And um, as our listeners might know, SAE um, has set these standards historically for automotive um, and aerospace and uh, probably the most famous example in the AV space is mm -hmm. SAE J3016. And the, these are fundamental, these industry-based standards are fundamental for making sure that vehicles are safe and for informing regulators. So um, I, I think that leads sort of what to the first and perhaps most important question um, is, is that um, whenever we're approaching a new technology, um, the hardest thing is defining what it actually is mm -hmm. and setting those standards. Um, so how, could you talk a little bit about um, SAE's J3163, um, which is, it's creating these definitions for shared mobility terms, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we published that at the end of last year. And um, it defines terms that are commonly used, yet there are so many definitions. Mm -hmm. For example, what do you call services like UberX or Lyft? Mm -hmm. Some may say ride hailing, some say ride sharing, some say ride sourcing, some TNCs. Say TNCs. Exactly. Right. <laughs> that list is endless. And some even say car sharing. Um, so we wanted to standardize that, and we worked with um, key stakeholders. That document was led by Dr. Susan Shaheen from mm -hmm. UC Berkeley, who is um, a leader in research for the shared mobility field. Um, she's been working in this field for like over 20 years, mm -hmm. um, which is very, um, you don't come by that often, right? Because right. <laughs> everybody is an expert, but then they've only been working in the field for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, we define those, and um, we also define the different uh, business models. So what is business to consumer? What is business to business when it comes to shared mobility? Mm -hmm. um, what is interesting is that uh, we published that at the end of last year, but uh, we are already revising it. So right now, um, we are looking at JA3163, a joint aerospace mm -hmm. and ground vehicle standard. Huh. So uh, we're going to add um, UAM, urban air mobility. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to be um, a very interesting uh, look at the whole shared mobility landscape in air, on ground, in water. 
And did this motivation to also look at air, is this based upon, do you, do you feel that that, that that industry is mature enough yet? Or is this more of seeing, it, making sure you're setting those sort of ideas and ways about talking earlier on? Right. Um, I think the um, idea came from more um, of mass. So mm-hmm. when we were looking at mobility as a service, a lot of times people forget the air part, mm-hmm. um, but it's really mobility as a whole, um, this, uh, regardless of what platform it takes, um, what surface, I guess, uh, it takes form. So um, we have a, an amazing opportunity because we're SAE and we have such a strong aerospace team. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'm working with our my counterpart from that team to um, make this um, so that it is comprehensive of the entire urban mobility picture. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the ground, um, we've seen this massive sort of boom in micromobility um, and you know scooters are flooding the streets and uh, folks think that's good or bad. Yeah. Um, but either way, I mean, micromobility has really created this sort of hype and attention towards um, smaller form factors. Mm-hmm. But what do you think really motivated a lot of this interest in micromobility in the first place? So um, I think there are so many um, factors that contributed to the success or the boom of micromobility. Um, first being the more the societal trends. Um, the society was already familiar with the concept of shared mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, we're used to it. Um, you have millennials who are not necessarily buying cars, uh, unlike their um, predecessors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, they are looking for that, you know, some say first, last mile, but it's really maybe the only mile um, mm-hmm. that you're looking for to close that gap and um, be able to really enjoy travel, which is something that, frankly, a lot of transportation engineers and transportation planners, we haven't thought about. And I, I am one, right? And um, right. it's we always looked at disutility, lowering that. But what about actually increasing joy and delight right. of travel? Is that something that's impossible? I think micromobility has proven that um, right. theory to be uh, needs to be revised, maybe or revisited. Right, because I remember yeah. the first time I rode a scooter, I was I was grinning from ear to ear. Yeah, and then my God, when I got an e-bike, I was thrilled. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And bringing that delight factor, I think, um, really, uh, I guess, um, contributed to the boom. And then, uh, but then you also wonder: is this then hype? Or is, can this be sustained um, in the long run? Um, can you keep people delighted on their 100th ride of a scooter at the mm-hmm. same level as um, the delight you have provided in the first two rides? Mm-hmm. And what do you think the answer to that is? I think that scooters um, right now, or micromobility in general, has um, been more recreationally used, mm-hmm. um, but uh, we will see vehicle designs that will be um, more utilitarian focused, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's going to allow you to um, bring stuff, material load, right? Right mm-hmm. now you can wear a backpack, but that's it. Right. Um, <laughs> I can't travel with my dog, um, <laughs> things like this, right? Or Imagine like a little dog basket exactly. in the front of the scooter. Exactly. I really I would it. like one. I actually bought... A scooter before the scooter pipe, like uh-huh. the you know the powered uh, standing scooter, and um, I really wanted to travel with my dog, mm-hmm. my French bulldog, um, because I wasn't able to use Uber mm-hmm. because the drivers would get mad that right. I'm bringing a dog in the car. Um, so I thought that was a really good option, mm-hmm. only to realize that I need to find 
a backpack that fits my dog now, right? right? <laughs> There's nowhere for her to be um, seated in the, in the tiny vehicle. So I think that's one. Um, the second part is the weatherproofing. Mm-hmm. Right now, um, you see, I actually did a study on um, looking at the impact of weather on e-bikes mm-hmm. versus pedal-only bikes versus um, e-scooters. And um, when it's good weather, meaning warmer temperatures, um, no rain, no mm-hmm. snow, uh, scooter use is very high. But when it comes to bike sharing, actually there are avid cyclists who use it for their commutes, mm-hmm. and they will still use it. Um, so that uh, they're not less sensitive, right, mm-hmm. to the weather. Right, it's like the cyclist model, like there's no such thing as bad weather exactly. in cycling, there's yeah. bad equipment. Exactly, right. yes. <laughs> um, they just blame the equipment, right? <laughs> right. That's why you need a $7,000 bike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, I think we will see more shelled vehicles in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the issue is if you get shelled vehicles, the vehicles get fatter. Right. Then can you still park them on sidewalks? And you get into some weird collision protection questions. Exactly. That you, in sort of that middle ground between a bike yes. where you don't have that and in the car yeah. where you have a lot of them. Yeah, you're like huh. going from this skinny stick mm-hmm. to this uh, fat square, right? And <laughs> right. something in between. Maybe it's a tweezy, right? But tweezers are not legal from what I know, street legal um, in most of the places. A uh, tweezy? Yes, like Renault tweezy. They're like... Uh, glorified golf carts. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> they're, they're very popular in yeah. Europe. Um, huh. And uh, it's interesting. You can fit, you know, two people, but they mm-hmm. would go uh, one behind another. So uh, it's very yeah. narrow. Gotcha. Yeah. So you can fit two in one parking spot. And that kind of addresses one of the biggest problems is it's a geometry problem. Yes. When we look at all the congestion issues that we face in American cities, I mean, people are driving giant SUVs around yeah. for one person. Yeah. Um, so that, that could be... So... So do you, you see micromobility as potentially helping to move that interest in, the, in different form factors then? Yes, um, mm-hmm. I, I do think so. Um, I think that uh, there are so many different um, issues that need to be um, addressed, um, mm-hmm. like how do you regulate these things? Um, I'm pretty sure the vehicles that we see right now, in terms of the, the tiny side, um, that's not it. We're mm-hmm. looking at the tip of the iceberg here. Mm-hmm. So when the vehicles become weirder, are the regulators ready for it? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the question is, what can we do for SAE as an SAE to facilitate that conversation for the industry? Um, we actually are going to publish our first document on micromobility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's J thirty one ninety four, and um, that's the taxonomy of micromobility vehicles. So we're officially going to call them powered micromobility vehicles mm-hmm. because we are only looking at those that have um, propulsion assistance or, or um, are fully self-propelled. So we're excluding pedal-only bicycles, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we have come up with um, thresholds for what the criteria would be for something to be considered um, powered micro. Um, and those are, first, it needs to be, the top speed needs to be no greater than 30 miles per hour, which mm-hmm. is quite fast. Yeah. Um, and the weight, the curb weight, so without the human rider and their material load, mm-hmm. um, needs to be no greater than 500 pounds. And um, these, we actually have strata um, for each of these um uh, variables so mm-hmm. there's like you know three or four levels of speeds in between 
but we wanted to keep that flexibility to allow innovation so that a new vehicle doesn't come up in the streets like oh wait <laughs> we didn't think of yes, that what uh, do we do now <laughs> now we have another gap in the taxonomy right, right? Um, so we wanted to keep that window open mm-hmm. um, and we actually identified um, six types of power micro mobility vehicles um, and for example the scooters I think that was the biggest headache because like what on earth is a scooter right <laughs> right like moped like scooter was scooter like three years ago and now we only think about the kids scooter plus electric motor right right so um we actually divided the scooter type into two so powered seated scooter mm-hmm. and powered standing scooter Got so it. does it have a seat or not i don't care if it has a seat and you can still stand on it it's mm-hmm. still considered a seated scooter right yeah totally yeah and then we um divided the boards by whether it has a self-balancing mechanism or not and then we have powered skates Mm-hmm. Um, you can ask Tony Ho about um, yeah. power skates. Um, I <laughs> Which we're planning to do tomorrow. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, Ninebot has them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we also have power bicycle, where the e-bikes um, then would fit in. So we have six types. And um, definitely, they don't capture the entire micromobility market, mm-hmm. um, but they capture the vast majority at this time. And you can take my word for it. We will have to revise very frequently. Right. <laughs> and you even alluded to some of the things that we're going to have to go back and look mm-hmm. at, right? Um, that, that's fascinating. Um, so on the note of sort of this change in mobility, there's also a shift in how we're thinking about not just the form factor of vehicles, but the data that we need to have mm-hmm. on how those vehicles are moving. Um, and could you tell me a little bit about the, uh, it's the Mobility Data Collaborative, right? Yeah. Um, and it's a consortium that's mm-hmm. meant to develop a framework for sharing uh, data, right? Um, yeah. So, so what's, how are you approaching this and sort of what sort of data are you looking for in doing this? So um, right now, uh, it is very common for cities to require data Mm -hmm. um, as part of the permit application process, right? So from the micromobility operators, so we're talking about, you know, Jump, Lime, Bird, um, those guys. And um, there are data platforms or aggregators like Populous, Remix, uh, Ride Report that kind of sit in between. Mm-hmm. So data is being shared in order to technically inform city planning. So I have resources. Where should I put, um, plan the next bike lane? Mm-hmm. I can use the trip data that I'm getting um, from the micromobility users, right? Mm-hmm. So you can see the gaps, right? Um, Unfortunately, trip data, especially trip level data, is um, has a lot of sensitive information, whether it's um, PII, personally identifiable information, or um, there are security risks right, attached to that. So the Mobility Data Collaborative is trying to come up with best practices to mm-hmm. reap the benefits of data but without compromising the security of or the privacy of the users and you know protecting the competitive intelligence attached to that as well and really streamlining the data sharing process such an easy task it is <laughs> exactly so easy um, <laughs> you know it has been very interesting because mm-hmm. um, we've been talking about this since the beginning of this year mm-hmm. and um, I've had the absolute pleasure of working with some of the um, you know the largest operators and um, you know the the trend-setting um, data platforms and, and cities and um, it, the mission is clear here um, we want to use the data mm-hmm. but 
we need to put the safeguards in place, right? right. That's it. Um, so, and so you're seeing there's the, the the private sector is agrees and is interested oh yeah. yes. because they want to see the bike lanes, they want or micro mobility lanes, whatever yes. you want to call them. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if I put in my road safety hat here, um, you as a micro mobility user, if you see more bike lanes, mm-hmm. you'll feel safer and you'll want to ride more scooters, mm-hmm. right? So right. it makes sense. And it builds um, a bigger tent for exactly. supporting the, these bike lanes too. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, absolutely, um, the data, there's no doubt about the value of the data. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, you know, should we share it at an aggregated level? If so, then what level is that? Um, how can we ensure that, um, you know, it cannot be, re- like the people, the users cannot be re-identified mm-hmm. um, using this data. Um, so it's essentially um, a multi-sector forum where the operators, the data platforms, the cities, and whoever else is engaged um, in this conversation can come to one place mm-hmm. and, um, you know, determine and uh, develop the best practices that's going to support uh, data sharing. So currently, we're actually working on two projects. Mm-hmm. Um, first one is around performance metrics. It is really crazy how many um, definitions you can get for a vehicle cap. You know, say huh. for example, a city has 500 ve- vehicles per operator allowed. Mm-hmm. Which ones are you counting? <laughs> are you counting the ones that are in my garage, like currently dead, or are you counting right. the ones that are? available, all juiced up, ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very interesting conversation, um, and we're really getting to the nitty-gritty um, mm-hmm. of that. And then the other side, we're working on the um, contractual language for data sharing agreements. So we're developing a couple of data governance models, and then actually writing the uh, legal language that can support um, those data governance models. So. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially a city uh, and an operator, they could pick and choose which one they would like to use. And you can, uh, you don't have to renegotiate, get all your lawyers involved. Uh, <laughs> right. Very expensive and resource intensive process. Um, you can forego that with this um, uh, pro- uh, best practice, hopefully. <laughs> right, hopefully. And, and I, that's one thing that SE has always done well, historically, is helping to augment the policy making at local, state, federal levels, mm-hmm. um, using that expertise that would be harder for cities to access, I imagine. Um, so that, that's fantastic to hear. Um, so we've talked a little bit um, about um, how, how folks feel about this, et cetera, but how do you think citizens currently feel about their data being collected as they're, as they're moving around? Yeah, I think it really depends on which city you live in. Um, and some citizens are more aware of um, there are privacy risks and than others, um, especially I think the current events uh, regarding, or the at least last couple of years um, mm-hmm. regarding those uh, risks be, or their uh, personal information being exposed, um, has kind of put in a bug in their ears. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it really depends on the person, and um, also are you going to take action? Um, in order to protect your privacy, right? Mm. Um, I think, uh, yeah, you will find um, different responses. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, I'd like to turn to accessibility. You've done a lot of great work in this area, um, but would like to hear about some of what you've done and, and, and where you hope to see sort yeah. of 
um, accessibility go next, sort of in the, in the mobility space and where attention should be paid? Yeah, so um, depends on what do you mean by accessibility. <laughs> <laughs> so are, are you talking about um, accessibility for people with disabilities? Yeah, people with disabilities, let's start there. Okay, mm -hmm. so on that, um, I did uh, oversee um, some of SAE's portfolio on um, making sure that automated vehicles mm -hmm. are um, designed uh, with uh, accessibility in mind. So um, there is a document, I believe it's G3171, and um, that is a, an information report, uh, pretty much a white paper, uh, collecting um, previous literature um, on what are the, uh, what can we take from, you know, um, the universal design, um, you know, met approach. Mm -hmm. uh, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from um, how the web has been designed um, with accessibility in mind, um, or smartphones, um, so that they can be um, integrated into um, designing automated vehicles and. It was really interesting because there were so many different types of stakeholders involved, and you also get the advocates, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was very challenging, um, for me at least, uh, to kind of draw that line between what is a standard versus what is needed research or research gaps mm -hmm. versus advocacy. Right. Right. Um, because we're not specifying the requirements of a vehicle, but it was a report. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's a really fine line there. Um, and uh, I believe that the on-road automated driving committee has um, been able to uh, plow through that and um, is probably at a point now that the ballot has been done and is ready to be published. Um, but uh, it was a very interesting experience. And I, I am not an expert in accessibility, but it was an opportunity for me to learn um, the challenges and the opportunities um, and um, kind of also look at that um, the accessibility um, issue in the context of other mobility, um, you know, aspects that I work on. Like, for example, is this electric scooter accessible mm -hmm. to everyone? Right. I don't think so. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, financially, it's not. Um, you know, someone with a wheelchair, there's no way. Mm -hmm. um, but should it be accessible to everyone? Should every single non-private mode of transportation be universally designed? Mm -hmm. That would be very expensive, right? right. So um, it's an interesting conversation. Um, I wish I had more knowledge on it. Mm -hmm. Love to learn more, and I would love to see SAE do more work in this field. Absolutely, and you know, I've been at a few forums this year, and with talking to people with disabilities who uh, face a variety of sort of mobility mm -hmm. impairment and visual impairment, and then auditory impairment. What's fascinating is just the range of issues that need to be considered with AVs. Yeah. I mean, when you drop someone off with a visual impairment, the suggestion from some folks, some advocates has been, you should be able to direct that person on how to get to the door and things yeah. like that, and um, ensuring there are curb cuts. And this is one thing that I think is really exciting about AVs is we're, we're seeing AVs trigger more attention for accessibility, I would hope, yeah. um, which is really exciting, and, and I really do hope that that continues. Um, and so I, I suppose where, um, where that kind of leads us to um, is the idea that we should be thinking about these design questions at the beginning, that we should be doing a lot of this research um, to make sure that um, this isn't something that's an afterthought mm -hmm. like it's been before, right? Um, yes, and um, this is 
I think the reason why a lot of um, advocates have been trying to get involved or ignite this conversation around AVs, um, because it takes years for vehicle design to actually come to fruition, right, mm-hmm. and be on our streets in mass production, and the time is now, they believe. Um, so, uh, yes, I think that it needs to be baked in. Um, it's very expensive um, to try to paste things and fix things after the fact. We have seen that with conventional vehicles. Mm -hmm. It is extremely expensive to make a conventional vehicle uh, accessible uh, for wheelchairs and whatnot. Um, You're looking at additional, you know, I heard like tens of thousands of dollars on top of the vehicle cost. Um, That shouldn't be the case. Um, However, could we find a way that a vehicle is more modular that it, it's more adaptable to whatever the need is. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps that is an angle um, that uh, could drive down costs, yet essentially make the fleet accessible if it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And um, so this leads into, um, I, th- I think, the big question. What is good mobility? I mean, how, how do we improve it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, from a transportation planning and engineering perspective, it is being able to provide options that are mm-hmm. very, very viable and desirable. Mm-hmm. So a spectrum of options. Say I, you know, we both live in DC. I'm going from my place near Union Station to work, right? Mm-hmm. I should, I, I would like to have five different travel mode options right. that are all affordable, that I could pick and choose depending on the weather. The, the fact that um, I am able to say, take a VIA, which is microtransit, to work, and it's super sunny outside, and I don't care if I'm sweaty on the way back home, so mm-hmm. I can take bike share home. Right. I think that's beautiful mobility. Um, the fact that, you know, I cannot take, I don't have many options other than to take UberX, mm-hmm. right, um, to the airport, because I have this humongous suitcase right (laughs) um that i think is limited mobility Mm -hmm. and i hope the options grow and to so that everyone can be able to afford and have you know geographically and financially accessible to good mobility Mm -hmm. which is a spectrum of options i totally agree i mean uh, mobility is opportunity but opportunity um is best realized when you have choice. Yes. Um, and so yes. I, I really love the idea of, of, of beautiful mobility. As yes, it should be beautiful and <laughs> joyful, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, well, uh, Annie, thank you for uh, joining me to talk about um, how we can make um, mobility uh, beautiful and joyful. Okay, so Annie, if uh, folks want to learn more about your work, um, where could they go? Yeah, we mm-hmm. have sa.org slash micromobility and um, all of our activities uh, related to this topic is all there and you can find my email address as well. Great. Um, and I am uh, at AV Gregar. Follow the Mobility Podcast at Mobility Podcast and uh, check out our website mobilitypodcast.com. Um, Annie, thank you again. Thank um, you very much. This is very enlightening and uh, looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank you. Thanks.